For our scripture reading this morning, we will be reading from Jonah chapter 2. Jonah, the short little book, jammed between Obadiah and Micah. Jonah chapter 2, if you're using a uh, Bible in the chair rack near you, that should be on page 774. Jonah chapter 2, and I will be reading verses 1 through 10. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my, about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. You are welcome to keep your place in the book of Jonah, but turn back one chapter to chapter one. That's where we'll be camped out this morning. Well, good morning, uh, Grace Hill Church. Uh, before we dig into Jonah, I just want to uh, share a bit of gratitude with all of you. It was a long journey uh, finding a home, but, but God was gracious and provided that home for us. He not only provided the home, but he provided perfect weather, what I would consider perfect weather. For the day we moved, uh, it was quite miraculous that in the midst of the, the coolness of spring, uh, there was this one parted day uh, on Saturday that was, that was very warm and sunny and very pleasant. Uh, but, but beyond God's grace and the weather and the home that he provided, there was many of you that helped. And I think uh, for us, it's remarkable to see so many men and women offer their time generously to help in, in so many ways, countless ways, that I, that I couldn't even begin to, to make a list of all the things that, that we were the recipients of, uh, your grace to us. And I was reflecting on it kind of shortly after the move, thinking like I didn't even get to lift many packages myself. It was, most of the boxes I think were lifted by other people. Um, some uh, poor men had the privilege of lifting our piano not once but twice. Uh, and that was God's grace to us, and, and for that, I am uh, extremely grateful uh, to all of you that, that, that bless my family. And before we dig into Jonah, there's a question I think that we all need to consider uh, before we take a look at chapter 1, and it's this, is who deserves grace? You know, how do you determine who is worthy of grace? What metric do you personally employ before you yield your grace upon others. Who deserves grace? Well, let me tell you, church, that the only kind of person 
that deserves grace is no one. By nature, to deserve anything is to rightly earn it, and grace can never be earned. Yet, myself included, we all have moments when we are forced to fight whatever that internal mechanism is within that wants to evaluate whether or not someone, <laughs> someone deserves grace. We wrestle with that. And like Jonah, we, we all have the tendency to form a very narrow view of God's grace. We don't believe God really, really needs us to save other sinners or to compel fellow brothers and sisters towards repentance. We may even fall into the trap of refusing to believe that God will or even can save people that we love or that he can change or wants to change those who are closest to us. We may even admit that, that we are so self-sufficient and fully capable of providing for ourselves, not only just the day-to-day -day common needs that we encounter, but ultimately, whatever extends outward into the very corners of our lives, we are capable. We can do it. And in effect, we deem God's grace unnecessary in our lives. But the book of Jonah demonstrates that salvation, indeed, is of the Lord, as Andrew just read from chapter 2. Salvation is of the Lord, and that God's gracious offer of salvation extends to all repent and turn to him. The book, though, equally demonstrates how our prejudices, our prejudices, like Jonah's warped sense of nationalism, can hinder us from following the gracious will of God. Jonah typifies those who believe that all sin must be punished and thus rendered Jonah then unable to accept God's willingness to forgive anyone graciously, including those who actually came to faith and repented. Throughout this very short prophetic account, the book of Jonah does not merely object to divine mercy, grace, or forgiveness as such, what Jonah objects to is the recipients of God's grace, the Ninevites. In effect, he asks the question himself, how can God possibly pardon this unforgivable, sinful people? How could God be so gracious? And what I believe is portrayed throughout this morning's text is, is in many ways a very staggering display of how easily we can believe that when God distributes his grace— it should come easy, and it shouldn't cost us anything. Though the grace that we share with others and the grace that God has shared and given to many of you is only possible because it costs God everything. See, God's grace is dangerous. We have a God who lavishes grace upon many undeserving men and women. That is a dangerous place to be. God's grace is dangerous. So will you look at me, with me in Jonah chapter 1 this morning? Beginning at verse 1, and we're going to read through to the end of Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. The entire chapter this morning. Listen to the word of our Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, 
Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then he said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. God's grace is dangerous. And as we look at Jonah chapter 1 this morning, I think it'll be helpful to frame our time together with three points. Uh, point one, dangerous grace makes us uncomfortable. Makes us uncomfortable. Dangerous grace makes us panic. And third, dangerous grace makes salvation possible. Uncomfortable, panic, and possible. So point one this morning, dangerous grace makes us uncomfortable. God's grace often calls us to do something other than maintain the status quo, doesn't it? Uh, cooperating with God in the salvation of his own people is often a privilege, is it not? People that are already like you, people that share the same beliefs as you, it's safe. It's comforting. And cooperating with God in the salvation of 
his people's enemies and those opposed to the gospel of his son is preposterous. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd rather not. Because that's dangerous. People that we know disagree. People that we know are antagonistic. Let's look at Jonah chapters 1 verses 1 through 3 again to hear how God is calling Jonah to task. He says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, we all know individuals that believe that somehow certain people are just beyond the reach of God's grace. Uh, the unsavable, per se. We all know them. The people least likely to be saved by God. The least likely to have a change in their life. We may know them personally. Uh, we may know how wicked and evil they are. We may have even seen it up close and maybe far too personable at times. We also may have observed these people from a distance, whether it's politicians, world organizations, terrorist groups, ethnic groups, false religions. These people we put into a category so easily as, as those unlikely candidates for God's grace that we are, we are certain that there is no chance for them. There is no way that God's grace is for these difficult, evil, wicked people. There, there is no shortage of men and women who need grace, and there are plenty of big cities filled with big sinners. Nineveh was one of those big cities filled with plenty of sinners. And I can assure you that as big as you think Merton is, there are many sinners in the town of Merton. Nineveh, God says himself, was a great city. And that might be true. It was one of the major cities in the empire of Assyria. God himself calls it great, and excavations prove that Nineveh's walls enclosed about a circuit of 60 miles. So it was big geographically, but there was probably about a million people located in this town or city, have you. Uh, Nineveh, for those of you that don't really keep up with you know, ancient geography and, and cities and such, would be located basically where modern-day Mosul, Iraq is. So if that helps you get a perspective on where Jonah was actually called to go, it was a, a location in, in Iraq where the uh, once very heavily occupied militant group ISIS was the hub of that region of the world. Now, I don't want to, to go to big cities to confront big sinners any more than you do. Uh, I rarely want to go to small people to confront small sins either. Confronting sin and confronting people who are in sin is uncomfortable, isn't it? See, Jonah's reluctance to go to Nineveh was no doubt the misunderstanding that, that all other nations, all other people groups other than his own, were outside of God's merciful, gracious jurisdiction. See, boundaries are concerned with, with identity. And, and through the ages, people of God have rightly been concerned with boundaries, not, not simply geographical, but also doctrinal, moral boundaries, social boundaries, even political boundaries. We're well aware of boundaries that we either set up in our lives or other people have set up in their lives. And so to denounce Nineveh, Nineveh for Jonah, to denounce this wicked people 
in Israel, his hometown, would have guaranteed Jonah popularity. Because they all agreed. Just as if we stood here today in Grace Hill and denounced the moral, horrific abortion that is rampant throughout our nation. Well, we can all feel safe about saying that, but are we really going to go march to Washington or confront anybody who is protesting and angry about protecting what they call rights? This is a much safer place to do it, isn't it? But see, for, for Jonah, to do it in his own hometown was very safe, but to be called to go to denounce Nineveh to the Ninevites was unthinkable. By calling Jonah to go to Nineveh, God was calling him not only to face the unknown, but to face ridicule, possibly humiliation, but also to venture alone into a most feared and hated place in order to show God's concern for his enemy was, I assure you, something that Jonah thought was dangerous, maybe even crazy, for God to ask him to do that. Jonah exhibited a bigotry in a, in a form of maybe ethnocentrism that regarded God as the exclusive property of the believing community. Thankfully, though, the character of our God, who is portrayed as a God of universal grace and mercy, is not limited by national boundaries. Jesus himself exhibited this. Jesus frequently broke through the conventional social, geographical, and moral boundaries of his day. He spoke publicly with women, touched lepers, rescued the Samaritan, and he socialized with sinners. There was very little, you could say, that made Jesus uncomfortable about distributing grace to the unlovable and the unworthy. Be faced with such a dangerously uncomfortable calling, we often attempt to avoid God's plan to dispense his grace. If you look back at the beginning of chapter 1, not only does God call him to, to go to Nineveh, we would expect in most cases that as a prophet of God that he will respond positively. But if you look back chapter 1, verse 3, this is how Jonah responds. But Jonah rose, not to go to Nineveh, but to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare. He went down into it to go with him to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now, fleeing to, to Tarshish is, is the first hint that when called to do something difficult, the human soul, not just Jonah, but the human soul, prefers to flee away. Uh, difficult things sometimes cause us to turn the other way. To run away appears to be the easier option. Now, Jonah uh, thought that by a change of circumstances, he might get away from the presence of God's hand upon him. Now, Jonah is not alone here. Adam hid himself from God's presence. Cain went out from God's presence. Jonah fled. Now, notice that God, in this text anyways, God does not send Jonah away. Rather, being fearful of the consequences of God's goodness and grace, Jonah runs away. Now, Jonah didn't actually believe that he could remove himself from God's presence any more than you or I do. You know, in Jeremiah 23, the prophet says, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that, he cannot, so that I cannot see him? Declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? Declares the Lord. And of course the answer is, of course. Yeah, there's nowhere to go to hide from God. 
But being in the presence of God presupposes that we're taking part in the work of God. And this does not always mean doing something dramatic, such as going to Nineveh. It means expressing or reflecting God's ways in the world. And Jonah, Jonah was called to express God's active concern for Nineveh. But being in the presence of a God who loved his enemies was unbearable for Jonah. We can't fully understand the reasons for Jonah's actions. We also should be careful not to judge him too harshly, for in the presence of God's call, we are all tempted to adopt different approaches which enable us to resist his call and remain intact, to remain safe. See, Jonah didn't believe he could flee God's presence any more than he believed Tarshish was a real place. Three times in the beginning of this chapter, we are told of the name of where Jonah's fleeing. Tarshish, Tarshish, Tarshish. Say that three times fast. Tarshish. Uh, Tarshish was identified by its associations. The term Tarshish may have been derived from, from the Greek name for an oar used in ancient ships. So on the Mediterranean Sea, uh, ships that used only sails could often be left stranded without wind, while ships with oars can continue their voyage. There is no stopping a ship that has oars. It's manpowered. It keeps going. So travel to, to Tarshish would necessitate long sea crossings, like journeying to the ends of the earth. Tarshish represented for Jonah a, a very pleasant place of security that bordered on non-existence. Nobody really knew where Tarshish was. Uh, one, one scholar, I'm going to read it for you because I think it's just, he said it so well, it was kind of fascinating to me, but one scholar, in response to the question, what is Tarshish, said the following. It says, in the story of Jonah, Tarshish is anywhere but the right place. It is the opposite direction. The direction a person takes when he turns his back on his destiny. It is the excuse we give. It is our rationalizations. Tarshish is anywhere but the right place. <laughs> called, called to get up, Jonah goes down. Called to go east, Jonah goes west. <laughs> and not only does he, does he leave, he pays to do it. Did you notice he, he paid a fare to take this ship? We don't know if there's any cost to get to Nineveh, uh, but he chose to pay the fare, goes entirely the opposite direction that God has called him to go. And it makes me wonder then, how often do you and I attempt to, to alter our own circumstances in light of God's word? Now, you and I may not physically flee anywhere. Uh, we may not try to literally escape geographical parts of the world, but we are all well advanced when it comes to avoiding those difficult convictions from God's word relating to our own personal sin or the sin of others. So what is your Tarshish? Where do you run in order to escape what God has called you to do? What are the excuses that you give for not obeying God's word? I got a long list of them. Jonah's flight from the Lord is compounded when we learn that he was sleeping during a massive storm. Look at chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship 
threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep? Somehow the, the, the storm that was raging within Jonah was now matched by a mighty storm on the sea. There is this internal turmoil going on inside Jonah's life. And we might wonder then how a man overtaken by such a storm within himself and now a storm on the sea, how this person could possibly fall asleep so deeply. I don't know uh, when you think about getting comfortable and, and going to sleep, if you think about being under great amounts of duress and loud noises and distractions around you feels like the ideal circumstance for you. Um, but here, Jonah, according to the scriptures, was in a deep sleep, on a ship, in a storm. Now, that doesn't seem like any of us would ever fall asleep like that, but when you consider that it's not unusual for, for people in profound denial of the situation in which they find themselves to seek out ways of avoiding its implications. It could be sleep, but it could also be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be food, it could be TV. All these things and more offer the respite from inner turmoil. So, so when we look at Jonah, Jonah's sleep was a very real way of escaping the implications of his call, as well as the additional implications of his response. It was this uncomfortably dangerous view of God's grace that led Jonah to flee. Grace is not always packaged with brightly colored bows of comfort and safety. If you imagine a baby, and we've all been one, uh, but you probably don't remember what it was like. Uh, for nine months, the baby is in a womb enjoying a very safe and secure environment which has has nourished it, uh, enables it to grow to the point where it's ready to leave the life of the womb and enter a new life. But if you can imagine if, if this baby were able to choose to remain in the comfort of the womb, it would die. Eventually, the safety of the womb would prove to be no safety at all. To refuse to be born is to choose to die. And yet the fundamental security of the womb remains attractive, and, and we can very easily try to recreate it in our lives. Could it be that the, the ideal for wealth, for comfort, for security and peace, in some respects, is an attempt at recreating a womb-like environment, a place where everything is safe, where nothing is dangerous, where confronting our own sin and the sin of others doesn't exist? We can pad the walls, we can offer protection, but that denies the reality of the world in which God is actually calling you and I to live in. Are we only comfortable so long as we are in control of when and to whom God uses us to reveal his grace? Would we rather avoid an individual who has hurt us deeply in order to preserve what we think is a better and safer way of life? Or would we dare to be dangerously uncomfortable and pursue this person because God calls us to reconcile and restore our relationships. 
Would we rather see our abusive relative or our slanderous co-workers receive God's grace? Or are we hoping for God's justice to be enacted on them? And what if, what if God were asking you, if God were calling you to be the instrument of grace in those relationships? Those dangerously uncomfortable situations. Is God's grace and goodness worth being dangerously uncomfortable? Well, not only is dangerous grace something that makes us uncomfortable, dangerous grace makes us panic. Point two this morning, dangerous grace makes us panic. Anxiety and fear, though irrational, often accompany the work of grace in our lives and in the lives of others. Grace is not, is not natural for us. Grace is not natural. And what is unnatural can, can startle us and create a panic of sorts. The God is not constrained by, by any sort of vindictiveness. Instead, he is constrained by his gracious love. And so when human beings turn away from God, he does not respond by running away from them. See, when Jonah flees from God's presence, God does not leave him. God pursues him. But that doesn't mean that God's pursuit of you will be quiet or calm or relaxing. God's grace may bring a dangerous storm your way. A storm that made everybody on board afraid, exceedingly fearful. See, the sailors we're told, we're, we're afraid. Their lives were legitimately in danger. And though they didn't know it yet, God's grace was behind all of this that was happening. Would any of them chose to endure this storm? My guess is no. But the storm was raging. The sailors were in danger, a great wind, a mighty tempest. The ship, in fact, ironically, the ship itself, an inanimate object, threatened to break up. This ship was like, I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm going to break up because the storm was so severe. And our lives are in danger. Just like these sailors, just like Jonah. Never mind the daily struggles we face. It could be unresolved conflict with your spouse. It could be your lack of patience with your son or daughter. It could be simply wondering how you're going to pay next month's rent or mortgage. You and I in, are in danger because we are conceived in sin, and no amount of effort from you or I will lead to escape from eternal punishment. And that is something we all should be in panic about if there were no hope. See, Jonah fled to escape God, but he could not evade the turmoil that he created. The great wind and tempest now afflicted the sailors, and if Jonah had any sensitivity at all, we may fairly assume that it mirrors the storm within him. But external and internal turbulence that was happening in Jonah's life, occasioned by God's word, now threatened other people. And so Jonah's attempt to escape God's presence resulted in collateral damage. See, God, in his desire to be gracious to Nineveh, Jonah, in fleeing from God's desire to be gracious, 
has now brought a dangerous act of grace that has followed and pursued Jonah to the sea. When panic ensues, we attempt whatever it takes to escape, and the sailors on board the ship strained to save themselves. Let's read from verse 5 through 13, and I'm going to go over all this again, so if you miss it, don't worry, because we're going to backtrack and, and highlight some of these things, but try to listen for the kind of things that these men were trying to do to get out of this horrific situation. Starting in verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has, has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And then he said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So I want us to observe all the methods employed by the sailors in an effort to save themselves. First, they cry out to other gods. They call on any and every god. Consider that just an exploration of every kind of religious experience that's possible, any kind of help, self-help technique, uh, YouTubing, you know, how do you, what do you do in a storm? How do you get out of this? It was, it was an act of desperation, crawling, calling out to whoever would listen, whoever could respond. Now, I had the, the fortunate experience of living in Southern California for a number of years, and where we lived was in a downtown area. We actually lived in the cross-section of two bars. And so the traffic was heavy with people in general, and in particular, uh, unique people, uh, to say the least. And in one occasion, there actually happened to be a festival going on, and so there was just many people, more than usual. Uh, this one particular evening, though, there was a individual who came up to our door and uh, slightly intoxicated, but was sharing with me kind of like his, his perspective on being an atheist. And so we had a long conversation about uh, his, his belief that there is no God. And it was very, I think, enriching just to have that conversation on my doorstep. And he admitted, though, as a pilot, that whenever th something goes wrong, there's an issue on the plane, he calls out to God. The gears aren't working, there's danger, he's flying a plane, he doesn't believe in God, but he says, but I call to God. 
So first we have a bunch of men on the ship. They call out to whatever god, whatever deity. They try every religion possible to save themselves. The other thing they try to do is they actually willingly give up all their possessions. They throw their cargo into the sea. They, they consider their lives more valuable than all their possessions, so they dump everything overboard that they can find. The men also decide to cast lots. Now, casting lots may not be something that we're totally familiar with. It might seem very antiquated and, and biblical, but what it essentially means is it's kind of uh, rolling the dice to see whose fault it was. Uh, but again, they're willing to try anything. And so they cast lots so that they'll be able to somehow zero in on whose fault it was, right? Because it makes your trouble in life so much easier if you can find out whose fault it is. So let's cast lots so we can pick on someone, even though it won't necessarily get rid of the storm, but if I can say, it's your fault, now we can all dig in on this guy. It's much more easier to deal with horrific, life-threatening situations when you can put the blame on somebody else. And they did that. But they didn't stop there. Because then when they found out who it was, and it was Jonah, then they played, like, 20 questions with him. <laughs> uh, they attempt to rationalize, as if somehow, if we just keep asking questions to Jonah, we're going to figure out how the storm's going to end. And, and so they say, you know, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? I don't know, just what kind of job do you have? Is that going to help us in the storm? Where do you come from? What's your country? Of what people are you? So they just grill him now. Let's just ask as many questions as we can. You know, it's almost like we're in the midst of our own life situations, and, you know, you know why does my mother or father still treat me this way? Why can't I ever seem to get ahead in life? Why can't I earn enough money? Why can't I establish a career? Why hasn't God provided someone for me to marry? When will this illness ever pass? Will I ever be healthy again? And we get stuck in the cycle of, of questions after question after question. And the questions can go on and on and on. And so they ask Jonah then for counsel. Well, what shall we do to you? <laughs> in other words, now it's flipped. What do you think we should do? How do you think we can end this storm? How do you think we can save ourselves? Now Jonah does have a solution for them. They didn't really like it. And so they resorted to what they knew best. They were sailors. So if nothing else is working, we know how to row. We'll just row extra hard. And so they rowed harder. If we just try our best, like we really mean it, then maybe that will work. But our efforts are really no different than these men. We often believe that if we would only pray long enough, often enough, with the most eloquent and articulate quality, that God will somehow be pleased with us. We believe that if we read our Bibles enough, we can earn God's love. We believe that if only I can stop this one sin from recurring, then I'll find peace and satisfaction knowing that I am finally secured in my salvation. But men and women of Grace Hill Church, God is not impressed with our efforts to earn his grace. 
no matter how hard you row. God's graciously dangerous pursuit of you will often make you uncomfortable. It may even make you panic. Producing actions and decisions that don't quite seem like they belong there. Actions and decisions that are produced through panic and anxiety that, in that circumstance, really don't quite seem like they fit. But when God is doing a dangerous act of grace in your life, we can not only be uncomfortable, but we can often panic. But that's not all it does. Dangerous grace makes salvation possible. Our third point this morning, dangerous grace makes salvation possible. Jonah knew that, that all of the, the efforts of the sailors were in vain. No matter how much cargo they hurled overboard, no matter how hard the men rode, no matter how, how loudly they pleaded with their false gods, they could not save themselves. Jonah knew that the salvation of these men rested upon one man's voluntary death. Let's look back to verse 11. So then they said to Jonah, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode, back to, rode, rode hard to get back to dry land, but... They could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Why was it that if Jonah had it in his power to save the ship's crew, if he knew what was needed, why was it that he gave the men the awful responsibility of throwing him overboard? Was it because Jonah needed their help? Commanding these men to hurl him overboard, by doing so, Jonah helped them recognize God's response to their obedience. That it was God, and not Jonah, who was the source of their deliverance. Jonah, through an act of self-offering, rather than suicide, finally opts for the lives of others rather than his own. Jonah ends up giving his life in order to save the pagan sailors, his fellow men. Perhaps Jonah's most dramatic portrayal of Christ is in his resurrection. For the sign of Jonah, alluded to in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, points us not only to the fish that represents the three days Jesus would lie in the tomb and then raise victoriously, but it also points us toward our helpless state, desperately in need of a dangerously vivid and costly display display of his grace. 
Because no matter how hard we work in this life, no matter how hard we row, the mighty tempest will inevitably destroy me and you. We all needed someone to give their life so that we might live. You needed a man on your ship with you who volunteered to be thrown into the sea. And men and women of Grace Hill, there was a dangerously gracious man, one who regularly made others uncomfortable, never panicked under pressure while distributing his Father's grace, and through his perfect offering, made God's grace available for you. And his name is Jesus. We sung these lines this morning that I think are very appropriate uh, from His Mercy is More. And the lyric goes like this, Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins they are many, His mercy is more. What riches of kindness He lavished on us, His blood was the payment, His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. There was nothing safe about Christ's atonement on that bloody cross. The willing sacrifice of God's only Son cost him dearly. It cost him everything. And he did it all for you. God's grace is dangerous, amen? Let's pray. Father, you are a kind and gracious God, and that doesn't mean that we don't try. We live in a world where every day we wake up and somehow feel that tug on our hearts to, to want to earn something from you. As much as we think we need to earn something from you, we believe that other people need to earn our grace and favor as well. But there, there is nothing deserving. There is no one deserving of your grace. Your son offered himself on the stormy waters of our lives, on the ship that we're riding in. We can do whatever we choose. But nothing will save us until you offered to have your son thrown overboard so that we might be saved. It was a very dangerous storm, but it was through that dangerous storm that we found the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Now please stand with us and uh, let's sing together of God.